Welcome to a special edition of the podcast, an extended discussion with William Weld, the Libertarian candidate for vice president. You were just Bill Weld, ML Strategies' former governor, and now it's quite an exciting time. But before we get to that, I wanted to ask you a few other questions. But we'll get to that, I promise you. Um, as Anne Allen said, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary. And you were governor when Mass Inc. was, was founded. I wondered, in that 20-year span, here in Massachusetts, how have you noticed, or, or have it, has it changed, the, the nature of politics in this state? Not so much in Mass. Uh, what I notice is nationally, and uh, I date the big shift uh, to the Republicans winning everything in 1994. Uh, I used to visit with Newt Gingrich because we were both Jack Kemp guys back in the early 90s. And I did notice that when he was minority leader in Washington, he had a saloon door on his office so that it would be impossible for him to have a private meeting with anybody. And then the next year, he was elected speaker. And you know something? I don't think Newt forgot about that saloon door. It was really kind of demeaning. So uh, the, uh, the assault on civility began in my calendar with that uh, election. And, and after that, the parties were totally at each other's uh, throats. And uh, a series of uh, redistrictings uh, drove uh, the Democrats to the left and the Republicans to the right. And uh, the the uh, tenor and the timber of uh, political discourse in Washington has never been the same. Uh, as, as was mentioned, I worked down there in the 60s in the House and, and uh, uh, 60s in the Senate, the 70s in the House, and the 80s uh, as head of the criminal division in Maine Justice. And uh, it was totally different. In the 70s, if somebody was giving a big speech, uh, everyone would go fill up the Senate galleries. Uh, and there was no, you know, C-SPAN focus on the camera so you won't notice it's four in the morning. Uh, in other words, people were persuading each other or endeavoring to. Gone. Absolutely gone. Uh, and uh, in the 80s, you know, the, uh, the governing coalition was one half Republican, was one half libertarians, one half uh, movement conservatives. But uh, we just went about doing the, we joke about that in the morning and then said about doing the boss's business and the total, you know, uh, tolerance uh, of both sides. And it was very clear in Ed Meese's Justice Department, which I left for other reasons, but uh, there was an acknowledged uh, difference between the libertarian side and the movement conservative side. I, of course, despised the movement conservatives, but I kept my views to myself. And I can't even begin to tell you what they must have thought of me. <laughs> So you were a libertarian way back then. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. I was a libertarian in law school. My, my treatises were Friedrich Hayek's Road to Serfdom and even more The Constitution of Liberty. Uh, and I, wrote, I wrote a paper about uh, no helmets. Uh, I don't think I wrote no seatbelts. I wrote a searching examination of the Foundation for Progressive Taxation. This is school. We can still have fun. <laughs> those were things that occurred to me. Those, those were you know, challenging basic uh, uh, tenets of, of government and why is it in our, in our society. So back in 1990, when you ran for governor here, you are sort of famously remembered for pledging to introduce people in prison to the joy of busting rocks. 
And that whole notion of sort of a tough on crime approach right. is going, going through a revolution right, right now across the country, particularly in conservative states. Right. How about you? Has yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm uh, uh, developing on, on that stage as well. I was coming off seven years in the Justice Department, and in this state there was the notorious Concord sentence where someone could get sentenced to 20 years in Concord and do six months or less. So there was no truth in advertising at all. So I was way up on my high horse uh, about that. Uh, and we'd done a lot of big narcotics prosecutions, and it was against major uh, dealers. Uh, but you're right. Uh, I think the United States is undergoing a re-examination uh, of that, including the mandatory minimums, which I championed when the U.S. Sentencing Commission came into being in the 80s when I was uh, in Washington. Together with Mark Robinson, it was mostly his idea. <laughs> Lock them up and throw away the key, not our problem. <laughs> but um, So I, I believe you're right that it was Republican governors in the South uh, not so long ago who began thinking, oh, wait a minute, we're paying you know 100-plus thousand a year to keep these people incarcerated in our fine jails, and all they did was have a possessory offense of narcotics. They didn't even sell. That doesn't sound right to me, just as said these governors, just as a cost-benefit analysis. And it kind of took off uh, from there. So first it was an economic uh, thing. Then people got more deeply into it. Uh, and they said, well, what are these people doing here in the first place? Right and uh, I've gotten into it. I'm very interested in the addiction situation, both narcotics uh, and alcohol. Uh, and I gave a talk in October when the, there was a group called Facing Addiction and Ourselves gave a big rally on the mall by the uh, Washington Monument, probably 30,000, 40,000 people there. But so my remarks were, I used to be a hard bar prosecutor, but this has got to stop because we're treating this as a status crime. And in American law, status crimes are not favored. And the status is addiction. And that's treated as the crime. And that's how society viewed addiction of both mm -hmm. kinds. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence that it's a public health emergency. Uh, and that the people do need uh, help. And you've noticed in, in Massachusetts, we've stopped sending women to Framingham, you know, which is incarceration. We send them somewhere else. And I'm totally behind that. And you would not have gotten that out of my mouth in the late 80s. So I'm, I'm very pleased with that trend because I think it's more humane uh, and it's less intrusive. Uh, and we had, so the, the, the growing libertarian in me, which was always there, is very pleased with this, uh, uh, this move. And we have another question on our ballot uh, this fall, um, legalizing marijuana. How do you, how do you as a libertarian well, approach that one? I'm not absolutely sure that I would have been for that before spending as much time as I have with Gary Johnson, <laughs> who's uh, you know very much in favor of the legalization of marijuana. Uh, only that one, but he wants to look at other drugs too, because he thinks that the criminalization creates a lot of the criminal behavior, and the analogy is prohibition and alcohol. I don't know the answer to those things. I, I did hear Gary say the other day that 300,000 people have died of alcohol in the last year in the United States, 100,000 of, uh, of uh, legal drugs, maybe the other way around. So the bad ones, uh, uh, heroin and cocaine, 8,000. 
and yet those are the ones that absolutely rivet everybody's attention. So that, to me, is at least worth uh, a discussion. Uh, and I do think there's something to the idea that, that by, by decriminalizing something, you take it out of the shadows, and then the incentives are not there for the bad guys to do massive criminal sales. Again, you wouldn't have heard it from me when I was in the Justice Department, although we did try to focus on the demand side as well as the supply side there. Uh, but it, it was by trying to persuade people not to use drugs. So, you know, Joe DeGeneva from Washington and I would go in uh, to see high school kids and we'd say, we love you, we hate the drugs. You think they're going to listen to somebody wearing a six-piece suit? <laughs> so it sounds like you're... You're thinking that issue over. You haven't quite reached a... Oh, I'm, I'm most of the way uh, towards the uh, we got to take a different, different look at this. And how does that play across the country? In a place like Massachusetts, it might play one way, but how does it play elsewhere? No, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the ballot question lost in Massachusetts. I, I, I haven't read the polling, but just my sense is that's pretty close in this state. And a lot of people are saying, oh, it's tough and you know, Colorado, and there's this unintended uh, uh, consequence. Uh, but across the country, uh, I mean, this gets into the politics of the national level. <coughs> I think there's a, you know, you remember the silent majority of Nixon, right? Or claimed silent majority. It turned out it was true. Uh, I think there's a silent majority of people in this country that, that don't want, as I said in a speech to the Republican Convention in 92, they don't want the government in their pocketbook and they don't want the government in their bedroom. And my thesis is that the Democratic Party wants the government to be in your pocketbook, other things being equal, higher taxes. And the Republican Party, beyond her adventure, wants the government to be in your bedroom, making all kinds of choices about abortion, sex, marriage, do this, do that, forms of education. I mean, please. Uh, so it may be generational. Uh, you know, our uh, Gary Johnson and my second biggest appeal is to the millennials of Bernie Sanders. Our biggest appeal is to non-Trump uh, Republicans. But, uh, you know, Gary Johnson says, uh, I think a majority of the people in the country might be libertarians. They just don't know it. There's no question that the libertarian has a little bit of an unwelcome uh, uh, connotation to it. People think it means libertine or anti-family uh, before they think it through. But if you think about the pocketbook in the bedroom, which is the uh, dumbed-down version I'm trying to get people to concentrate on, there may be a majority. So that pocketbook and bedroom... So, so it's not playing too bad. I, I don't get a lot of people saying, how dare you talk about drug legalization? Mm. So that the bedroom and the uh, tax in your pocketbook issue is sort of a, a part of the reason I take it why you're running. That was a summary of my political philosophy delivered to the Republican <laughs> convention in Houston in 1992 to a huge chorus of boos. All the Pat Buchanan people with their red signs were sitting up front. They got up and booed and booed and booed. They yelled, that's it. He just admitted it. He's gay. <laughs> <laughs> I want the government out of your bedroom means I'm gay. <laughs> but this year, the, two, the candidate for the Democratic Party and the candidate for the Republican Party uh, seem to offer you an unusual opportunity. Wouldn't you agree? 
Oh, because of the politics, yeah, because of them. Uh, because of them what? Talk a little bit well, about it. Well, uh, 25% of the people in the country don't like either party. And uh, the majority of the country doesn't like candidate A and doesn't like candidate B. So, no, we've got a lot of room to grow. Uh, you know, we're going to start as a, a little acorn. But uh, and actually, uh, Gary Johnson has been polling at uh, 10% when his name was included in polls. Uh, that may be, you know, Donald Duck, 10%. The third party would get that. But more recently, you know, there's polls where Gary Johnson, Bill Weld, this is who they are, and we're at like 8% there. So that's a more real figure. So we, we just have to get past 10 on the road to 15, and it could be a very interesting election year. But, but I'm getting ahead. You, you, let's go back to the 90s. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Let's start with Hillary. Now, you worked with her on the Watergate hearings, right? right? So you don't think she's right for the to be president? Why? Well, no, I, I, I think she's qualified to be president. Uh, and I actually shared an office with her, which is why I know she doesn't like dead mice. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> like a story. <laughs> but, uh, no, I've known her a long time and favorably uh, liked her then. I, I think she's a kind person, as I've said before. Actually, I've defended her over the years. Whenever the Republicans brought out the heavy artillery, I was her character witness. Uh, Bill Clinton uh, was my favorite co-governor in the early 90s. And uh, I, I thought he did a real good job as president. I, I've seen him more than her since uh, he left office uh, through the Clinton Global Initiative. I've been doing a lot of international work the last uh, uh, 15 years and run across him on a number of, in a number of different contexts there. And I love what he's doing with the Global Initiative all over the world, alleviating poverty, improving health conditions. And he didn't have to do it, you know. And Jimmy Carter's done a great job as uh, post president. I think Bill Clinton has too. So I like both of them. So you like them, but oh, you're yeah. run, but you're running. You don't want them to be. You don't want Hillary to be president. Well, don't forget the pocketbook part of it and taxes and that government is best which governs least. And people would say, why are you Republican? And the answer is because of size and role of government. You don't get that, I don't think, with today's government, uh, uh, today's uh, Democratic Party particularly uh, perhaps as a result of the challenge from Senator Sanders, but you don't hear a peep about that. It doesn't sound like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Al Fromm and Bill Clinton and the Democratic Leadership Council of the late 80s, early 90s. And, and I, I ask myself, would a President Hillary Clinton sign the Welfare Reform Bill of 1996, which Bill Clinton did? I bet not. She signed NAFTA, which Bill Clinton did. Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich and I, I can remember being in the White House late at night working on rounding up votes for that shortly before uh, the vote. In fairness, Hillary, Hillary Clinton and, and Bill Daley, who was the chief whip on that, were also present. But uh, would she go for NAFTA today? I doubt it very much. So I'm not sure she'd be a middle-of-the-road president the way the president was. Right. And what about Trump? 
you, you've been careful to say that you've you what do you how do you phrase it? Never say never, is that something like that? Did I say that? <laughs> I think what I said is no, you're not going to put in my mouth that he's a fascist. I think that, that's, <laughs> that's the only one where I laid up. Uh, I, I swung away on the other stuff. I mean, I think uh, the, the wall you know, reminds me of the Berlin Wall. It's which is a, a stain and a shame on the Soviet Union uh, for the entire time it was there. So we're going to have a Mexican Ronald Reagan saying, Mr. Trump, take down this wall, and he's going to have to take it down because he's on the wrong side of history. On the rounding up and deporting 11 million uh, immigrants whose papers are not in order, he's on the wrong side of history. I mean, that makes... Uh, he said it might not be all on day one roundup. Uh, you know, there, there's precedent for this. There was a, a deportation operation in the 50s, which was very successful. You know what the name of that operation was? Operation Wetback. It's a phrase that Jesse Helms used to describe Mexicans in the 70s and the 80s. And I defy anyone who was in official Washington in those two decades to deny that. I'm sure they will, but I heard it a lot. So does Trump scare you? Um, well, I'm not sure I want to use that word. I, I do think that uh, there is a question about whether he should be the person with his finger on the nuclear button. This is a guy who said, I'd like to go and talk about uh, arming Japan with nuclear weapons and South Korea with nuclear weapons. That's just not only not a good idea, I, mean, I go to these international conferences once a year on the great issues of the day with former heads of state. A recurring topic is nuclear proliferation, which is generally thought by these former heads of state to be the greatest physical threat facing the world today. So arming Japan and South Korea with nuclear weapons would kind of be not the solution. It would kind of be the problem, like nuclear proliferation. So. That's really very troubling. Uh, the uh, the roundups, uh, the, the midnight raids, the deportations, the building the Berlin Wall. Uh, somebody's not reading their history book. Tell me a little bit about how you got into this this race. It sort of all happened, seemed to happen fairly quickly to, in the public eye. Uh, no, no, it happened in a day. Uh, <laughs> I, were you bored working here or what? No, he was not. <laughs> Thank you, I couldn't remember the word for no. Or Steve Taco say anything. <laughs> so I got an email from this guy saying I'm vetting Veep candidates for Johnson. Would you be? Would you feel the call from Gary Johnson? Well, I remembered Gary Johnson because we were governors together in the 90s and good friends. And I liked his act and he, he liked my act, too. We were both fiscal conservatives and social liberals. Uh, and uh, so I said, sure. And we had trouble scheduling it for about 10 days just because of our schedules. Finally scheduled it for a Saturday morning at 11. So we both thought nothing much, you know, would be introductory. <coughs> He calls and says, if you'd have any interest in this, it's yours, your head and shoulders, go the other people were thinking about. I always bought your dog food when you were selling it back in the 90s. And, uh, and I said, well, wait a minute. Uh, there's a lot of good ideas here. And uh, so I just talked a little bit of politics and then said, and by the way, I don't know if it's relevant, uh, 
But I very much enjoy fundraising at the national level, and I was national finance chairman for Governor Pete Wilson when he ran for president, and I was New York uh, co-chair uh, for Romney, both in 08 and 12. Uh, and being New York co-chair for Romney was like being national chair for anybody else mm -hmm. in any other year. It's an amazing operation. Um, and they allowed us how uh, that would actually be a, a good fit. Uh, so I said, well, I think there's enough here, so we should uh, get together and uh, talk it through. So uh, my wife and I got on a plane to uh, Vegas that night. He was coming from Detroit into Vegas. And so we loyally stayed at the Wynn Encore. <laughs> then we had to disloyally go over to Harris, where they were staying to, to seal the deal. But we spent four hours talking it through. Gary was the guy I remembered, and I was the guy he remembered. And their favorite part was uh, Leslie telling about jumping into the bullring uh, in uh, La Mancha, Spain, which he did on a dare, and getting thrown way up in the air and landing on the bull's horns. And Gary is a uh, extreme sports guy. He's uh, he's um, Ironman triathlete. He's climbed every uh, highest peak in all seven continents. He climbed Mount Everest with a broken leg. I mean, he's just made out of wire and steel. Uh -huh. <laughs> So he loved this story. So uh, I think that actually happened before he said, yeah, you're the guy I remembered. Yeah, you're the guy. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. So, and and that sort of sealed the deal there. You can shake on it. Yeah. Um, so that was one day. And what is your, maybe it's too early, but what is your sort of day revolve around now as running as the libertarian vice well, president? The, the eight days uh, until Sunday were a blur. Uh, there was the convention, and then there was three days in New York and somewhere else. And now I've had actually a couple of days to uh, be in the office and start uh, making lists of fundraising calls, make a few of them. And my thought here is that we got to put some money in the uh, till. I mean, Gary's whole campaign uh, four years ago was $2 million. I told him this is going to be better <coughs> well be a $50 million campaign in the shade, so we can't do things the same way, and, and they, they get that. Uh, so we've uh, we've upped our game and some of the infrastructure. I think I'll probably want to get an office uh, uh, near here, but distinct from this building, to, uh, run, uh, if nothing else, the, the fundraising up. Well, I'd run the campaign out of there. Mm -hmm. And you'll be actively, that'll be a primary focus is raising money. It will be a primary focus of mine because I enjoy it. The two primary focuses are national media and fundraising. And the path is, let's say we're at 8 or 10% now. The path is we get to 12%. And then one fine day we get to 15%. And that's the percentage that even the Presidential Commission on Debates says gets you into the debates. My hope is that the national media might make it uh, difficult to exclude us from those debates, given uh, the obvious fact that our platform is different from the Democrats on the fiscal side and different from the Republicans uh, on the uh, privacy and social side. So no one speaks for those voters at the debates unless it is we. I think that's a good argument. So um, 
a lot of the coverage. Yes, particularly since the polling shows that's between 40 and 55 percent of the American public. I see. So a lot of the stories out of the convention in Orlando um, were talking about, frankly, the strangeness of the Libertarian Party and openly wondered whether uh, you and Mr. Johnson were jumping on that bandwagon because you, you, that would give you the platform to run. But are you, are you wedded to that platform? Are you, because this is a group well, that was booing you on No, no, it's stuff. mostly, I mean, those are the people. Those weren't the platform. The platform is pretty good. It reads like the Declaration of Independence. It's very general, uh, very well written. And then you get to, we're going to repeal the income tax code. And so I sort of say, well, actually, we're not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm more than happy to consider a flat tax of 17 to 19% as Steve Forbes uh, uh, proposed in 96 and, and 2000. I thought, you know, Steve Forbes' economic ideas appealed to me uh, a lot. Uh, he and I uh, worked together to try to get successfully Christy Whitman elected governor of New Jersey in 93 based on that platform, essentially. Uh, so there's only a few, and obviously there was sentiment on the floor there that bubbled up to have uh, the U.S. get out of the United Nations. That's not happening. Uh, but just a few, and I don't think that's in the platform. I think that's uh, the people closer to the hardcore wing of the Republican Party, the activist wing. But the treatment I received there was certainly no worse than I received at the Republican uh, convention in Massachusetts in 1990. when. People would come up to me with their one-year-old children and say, hey, Bill, you want to kill her too? That was the convention when the abortion issue was very much front, front and center. Uh, and a lot of people were great. And uh, you know, obviously, a lot of people were very free-spirited. <laughs> <laughs> I can think of one in particular. Was this the striptease? Well, this is the, uh, my... my my answer there is I've seen better at the Hasty Pudding Theatricals. <laughs> you probably performed some of them. Absolutely, and that guy would not have made the, made the cast. Um, so so you, I, I take it then that the, the platform, you said there's a lot you like in that. Almost everything. Almost everything. Um, but that's... A, a, but I've read the platform, too, and it's in broad, right. very broad. Right. So you could interpret it one way, and perhaps someone else could interpret it sure. quite a different way. Sure. Someone else could interpret it, no driver's licenses. It doesn't say that in the platform. It doesn't. But there are some who say that's what... We know that, because Gary Johnson was booed when he said, yeah, no, I think we need driver's licenses. <laughs> right. And it is fairly clear on the drug issue. Uh, you know, we shouldn't pass any laws that sort of restrict, yeah. uh, you know, what you, as long as you're not hurting anybody. Yeah, as long as you're not hurting anybody. So, um, what does it say? But even Gary has now said, I'm not talking about anything other than marijuana. You know, I think criminalizing does have uh, unintended consequence of creating criminal behavior, but I'm just talking, I, Gary, am just talking about marijuana now, and we'll see about the rest. What about Obamacare? What the, do I the plat Well, the platform talks about private enterprise. You, you know, everyone stands on their own. To, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. But this whole notion of uh, the government heavily involvement in the in the healthcare sector, I was just sort of curious. Well, the question yeah. is how heavy. I mean, I remember sitting with Charlie Baker. Uh, 
we were working on education, welfare, and health care, and he and I were sitting in my office, and we had, you know, the, the objective in health care is two things. One, maximize the number of people that are covered by insurance of whatever type, uh, and two, lower costs, okay? So we had, you know, a sliding scale subsidy up to three times the federal poverty rate to get people into the system, uh, and we had this, that, and the other method to control costs, and it was nothing like the bureaucracy and the panels uh, that are in the Obama law that eventually uh, passed, and this was kind of maybe, you know, baby steps towards Romney care even. Uh, but uh, I, for example, have always been in favor of an individual mandate on the analogy of uh, compulsory insurance for a driver's license, because if you don't have an individual mandate, that 29-year-old bartender uh, who's making $110,000 a year and thinks he's immortal is never going to pay for one penny for health insurance because he thinks he's immortal, and he is until he breaks his leg skiing at Sugarloaf, and he runs screaming into the emergency room. He's not in the system, and you and I wind up paying for it because nobody doesn't get treated in the United States. Nobody doesn't get treated. So the cost either gets socialized or it doesn't, and you want as many people in the system as possible so that as few people as possible have their costs socialized. So, you know, I think those were the twin aims of Obamacare. Uh, you know, I'd like to see more recourse to uh, health savings accounts where people can squirrel money away uh, and, you know, have a catastrophic plan if they want, uh, where people wouldn't be told as much as they are under Obamacare, as I understand it, what they're going to have, because the government has told the insurance companies, you know, this is what you got to do. Uh, and if people made their own choices, I bet you nickel that they'd be more inexpensive than the choices with the big government uh, heavily influenced plan. So to that extent, yeah, I'd, I'd try to move it uh, in a uh, market and competitive and, and even more to the point, personal choice direction. Mm -hmm. I'm not as hysterical as 90% of Republicans are about it, however. You, you've mentioned Charlie Baker. And yeah. You mentioned when he was in your administration. And I know you're a big fan of the way he's leading the state right, right. now. What's he doing wrong? What, what, what do you think he's not doing right? Boy, just about Just about nothing. Uh, I mean, he's very smart not to get into the presidential race. He'll have Even when you're running. No, 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 no. He would have the Republicans and the Democrats saying, what are you doing? Let us read this from the libertarian platform. You know, I told him, uh, after, and I did not even talk to him before announcing this thing. And I, and I sent him a little email saying, I hope you understand. That was so you would have deniability. He said, copy that. Copy <laughs> that. <laughs> <laughs> or words to that effect. Right. Do you think it's it's strange for the governor not to, he says he's not going to vote in the presidential race. you think that's odd? Is that a shirking of his responsibility as a as a voter? I bet he'll think of someone to vote for. <laughs> What did he type back to you about that? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing? So is that your only exchange with him in an email? Yeah. yeah. Uh, on this topic. On this topic, yeah. Um, so I, I still go back to you get a call, would you be interested in, in taking another call about running with the Libertarian Party? You say yes. 
Uh, I'm just sort of imagining you in, the, in an office down the hall, or I don't know, is he up a flight or up a flight? <laughs> and you get that call and say, yeah, I'd like to do that. Um, there's something, something was going on with you personally, I, I got to believe. Most people would go, oh my God, I don't think so. But you, you sort of said, yes, is that, what was, what was making you do that? Oh, you know, I've, I've been around national politics for a long time, so I, I, I don't, I don't shrink from that level. Uh, I'm not saying you shrink from that level, but you're ensconced in a in a job. You've got a, a life here, and this, to some people, might be wow. That's a real flyer. To no, to no, work. it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a step. It's a real step. Um, I, I've I've said to some people I, I feel kind of like the Rosie Ruiz of 2016 because this is your early question about you know are you just grabbing this platform? Well, mm, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you're on all 50 states. You don't have to watch what you say because you don't have to worry about the Republican social conservative policy that I've been carrying on my back for 25 years and none too happy about it. Uh, you don't have to worry about uh, being, uh, uh, you know, trying to get all chirpy about adding $20 trillion with a T to the national debt. This is hollowing out the economy, okay? I mean, I know... <laughs> I've knocked around the world a lot more now than I had 20 years ago, so I have a better sense of uh, what is a bad thing for a country to do uh, economically, and spending money as though there's no tomorrow is not a good thing for a country to do. So it's sort of, you sort of make it sound like we're going to see the real Bill Weld here. Uh, well, we get to tell the truth. And, and so what I said to the convention in Orlando is, free, free at last. They didn't think it was funny. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly how I felt. Yeah. And, but again, just... Oh, yeah, the real new world, yeah. No, you're going to see us swing away. And swing away in, in, on those issues, or... Okay. Right, right. Yeah. But still, personally, uh, I'm a fairly conservative person. Yeah, I, I think I've had two jobs in my life. Now you, you know, you're all over the place. And always sort of, and actually you look very energized right now. Yeah, I am. So you, it's, it's obviously suiting you better than what you were doing. I'm, I'm making that up. But, but you seem like- I lost the 40 pounds dieting over a year and a half before I got this call. So I haven't lost 40 pounds since getting the call two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know you lost 40 pounds. I lost 40 pounds. Oh. I got back from three four-day weekends in Europe, and I weighed 237 pounds. Not a pretty sight. So I just started eating salads from Whole Foods instead of going to Harvard Square and having restaurant meals. And it took a year and a half, but I lost 40 pounds. And when you're going to be raising money, are you going to be traveling all over the place, or is a lot of this by phone? Or oh no 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 no, all in person. All in person. Anyone will take a meeting. Yeah. So and that and you'll be targeting Republicans and Democrats. Well, no, mostly, mostly Republicans to start. Uh, I mean, a good start would be those who have said that uh, they're not going to support uh, Mr. Trump, but they are Republicans. Mm -hmm. So that's. That's a head start. Are you surprised that the Republican Party, to some degree, is coalescing around Donald well, Trump? Well, no. I mean, I had a sneaker in that direction. You know, I didn't jump on the never Trump. Right. Uh, and because I liked 
some of the things he was doing, even stylistically. Uh, and I kind of enjoyed his performance in some of the debates until it just became too much of the same thing. Right. And then I started listening to the uh, proposals for after he gets elected, and that sounded worse than even just the insults in the debates. Mm -hmm. So I hate to say it, but uh, an element of seriousness crept into my thinking. It's very unlikely <laughs> it happens. What is it about him, though, that you think attracts a lot of followers? A lot of followers. Because you'd have to say he was a—he's a huge surprise at yeah, how far no, he's gone. Every, everyone thought he got it at one percent. People thought that was going to be his peak. Right. I think he's been thinking about running for president for 30 years, and I think he's rehearsed in his own mind a lot of what do I think about this, what do I think about that, uh, and that made him so quick uh, that he. He shined to very good advantage in those debates with his quick counterpunch, and he, you know, describes himself as a counterpuncher. He's been in a lot of uh, business negotiations where he laid has laid snares for the unwary. I'm prepared to think he's pretty good at that. I'm also prepared to say you can't do all that stuff if you're president of the United States. You can't say, "Here's my company." Uh, give me this, uh, give me this federal contract, and then come back six months later and say, "Oops, I'm going to have to declare bankruptcy for my company if you won't recut the deal. That'll slow you down three years and kill your project. So let's recut the deal." Well, if your company is the United States of America, you can't say, "I'm going to stand on one leg and hold my nose and declare bankruptcy unless you'll agree to redo the terms of these trillions of dollars of." Uh, U.S. debt that you, the Chinese, are holding. I don't think that would work with the Chinese. That would be a direct analog of what he's done many times in business using the bankruptcy code and the threat of it. But it, it seems like he isn't, um, there's not a lot of talk about ideas in this campaign so far. I mean, there's a lot of shots back and forth, but this is on the Republican side. Well, and when there are discussions about ideas, they're awful. They're the immigration policy. They're the wall. They're let's get more nuclear weapons in the Far East. They couldn't be worse. How do you think the press has done covering this race? You say you're going to try and get a lot of national press coverage. How do you think well, it's we done? We have to because we're starting down here. Right. But how do you think the press has done covering this uh, president? I think it's done pretty well. Uh, I, I open the newspapers with great pleasure every morning. Because? Well, I, I get 18 minutes <clears throat> unalloyed joy. I start life in the high-numbered wards of Boston, Ward 18, which is the stronghold of both Kevin White and Tom Menino. And if you told me 25 years ago I was going to start life in Reedville, Massachusetts every day, that's where I take the commuter rail train from, the South Station, 18 minutes, I would have thought the odds of that were slim. But uh, it's really great. I get to read and read and read. So, and but what do you what do you what do you mean? What are you reading in that 18 minutes? Did you say? One train is 18, and the other is 30. Uh, no, I read a lot of the electronic stuff from from the newspapers, uh, and uh, I, I read the election coverage. And uh, I I don't think that the press is missing a lot. 
And I think they're starting to notice an absence of clothes in the case of Mr. Trump. Starting to advertise that, in fact. Mm-hmm. You're starting to call him on some of the yeah, policy I mean, positions yeah, he's I mean, taking. Just to, to go out of town, the Washington Post had a bunch of articles. Uh, the Globe may as well. This is how fascism comes to America. There was a wonderful Andrew Sullivan article in the May 2nd issue of uh, New York Magazine, which went all the way from Plato down to modern history. I plan. I, I hope Newt is not the, uh, the nominee on uh, Trump's ticket because that would mean I would have a debate against Newt. And Newt knows more history than I do, but uh, I, I think it's going to be very illuminating to delve into history in assessing the likely result of Mr. Trump's announced policies. And he's not going to stop announcing them. And the guy's a he's a fire hydrant. Uh, he will. Not, I mean, so am I to an extent. So people tell me to shut up. Boy, I do not pay attention to that. And I, I don't think he would either. So I think uh, Ann Ellen mentioned the Grateful Dead. Are you still a Grateful Dead fan forever? Yeah. I mean, we've got Spotify now, so I listen to whatever I want. And both my wife and son, are, they can be the world's greatest. Anybody with Spotify can be the greatest DJ in the world. If I can go from, uh, you know, Desmond Decker and the Aces to uh, the Scottish Twins who did 500 Miles, they're probably my two favorite songs. Listen to each of them for 15, 20 times, then I'm in a good mood. Yeah, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who goes along with you.